Welcome to Conservation Chronicles. I'm Jonah here with Mariana. How's it going, Mariana? Pretty good. How are you? Hello, everybody. Uh. Um, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing exciting to report. Okay. Yeah. Me, me neither. <laughs> that was so awkward at the okay, beginning. Okay. Let's just push on then. Yes. Okay. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, today um, we're actually covering a news story as our entire episode. We think this one's really important because it's a near-perfect example of the enormous effectiveness of community conservancy. Uh, so this article comes from Manga Bay, which is a fantastic conservation news site and also where we get most of our news from. I definitely recommend visiting it. Um, they're really good. Uh, so yeah, so we'll just delve right into the the news story. Of course, we'll put a link to it in our episode notes. So it is about community conservancy um, in a way. So to put it simply... Community Conservancy is a program-based conservation enterprise uh, that works by providing agency and stewardship and economic incentive to local communities so that conserving the resources they use and live around becomes more beneficial to them than exploiting those resources. It's, in my opinion, the most effective way to reconcile humans with nature. So that's what Community Conservancy is. Yeah, and so the story today um, comes to us from Bangladesh and actually, we will probably because this is community conservancy is a something that Mariana and I are both really passionate about, and I also think it's one of the most effective ways for you know that that to reconcile the um, humans with nature, like you said. And when we started this podcast, we talked about how we wanted this show to be about sort of the human wildlife interface and community conservancies address that like spot on. So I think we'll probably mm-hmm. do more con- community conservancy episodes, you know, here and there to cover some of these really awesome ones, like the one we're going to cover today, which like I said, is um, based in Bangladesh. And so to, pro- to provide a little bit of backstory about it, it started with um, a researcher named uh, Shahriar Caesar Rahman and, um, And he was working in the Chittagong Hills track, hill tracks, um, or we might call it CHT, in Bangladesh, um, specifically sort of uh, southeastern Bangladesh. And he was looking to find evidence of certain reptile species there, um, really just getting you know, how many species are there, what species are there, because the area, you know, no one's ever done that kind of work there. So it's just a big question mark um, for biodiversity. And the, the Chittagong Hill Tracks is a forested area in the remote mountains. And like I said, in southeastern Bangladesh, and it has a really low human density, which is why um, researchers like this guy, Mr. Raman, want to go in and survey the biodiversity because there's so little human activity there that that's probably a stronghold for a lot of species. Um, and because there's such a low human density there, it's, like I said, there's just a lot of information lacking. Um, and sort of this this whole story is about Raman sort of... Uh, trying to take advantage of people that live, not take advantage of people that live there, but take advantage of citizen science using people that live there to fill these knowledge gaps. 
Um, so Raman's the founder of this organization called Creative Conservation Alliance, which is uh, a nonprofit based in in Dhaka, which is in Bangladesh, and they do they do a couple. They have a couple programs throughout Bangladesh. I was checking out their website, um, doing research and biodiversity monitoring. Um, <clears throat> but he was, so he was working for Creative Conservation Alliance, CCA, in this area of the Chittagong Hill tracks. And he was, you know, trying to be creative with how to um, further the research in this area to learn more about what species exist there. So do you want to tell us about sort of how this whole program there started? Yeah. Yeah. So um as Jonah said, he was in the he was in the region looking for um evidence of some reptile species and he started talking to the local people there. And so what what this eventually would become started with the anecdotal evidence that he was getting from these people. Um, and by anecdotal evidence, what we mean are, you know, like stories, um, you know, hunters or people in the forest would tell him stories about animals he'd seen, or, uh, that's what we consider anecdotal evidence, which I want to point out because I find myself encountering a lot of anecdotal evidence when I'm in the field. Um, and I think a good researcher isn't going to dismiss anecdotal evidence because you can use that to inform possibilities for your scientific research, which is what Raman ended up doing. Um, so the so the way this story progresses can almost be used as a guide for researchers in the field uh, when it comes to community conservancy. And I've kind of simplified it into four steps. Um, it's obviously oversimplification, but um, the steps are basically one, you build a relationship in the community. Two, you introduce agency, um, which is, you know, giving the people power and decision making and involvement uh, with the cons- uh, conservation program that you're trying to instill Three, you strengthen the agency in two parts, uh, which we divide into A, increase resources, and B, increase incentives. And then four, you broadcast the results, um, which is where uh, this article came into play. So Raman started his work in CHT in 2011, and that's when he sort of started to build a relationship with the people there. Um, And the, the local people that live there are called the Murrow people and they, they live in the forest and they know the forest very well, uh, but they've actually been marginalized by the government and, you know, illegal logging and poaching threatens, um, their resources and their way of life. And it, it wasn't easy for Raman to, to gain the trust of the Murrow people, um, and, you know, that was seven years ago. And even still, there's even though most of the people have come on board with his program that he developed that we're we've still yet to talk about, um, there's some villages and, and people that just refuse to cooperate because um, to simplify the political strife that's gone on in, in that part of, of the world, um, there's sort of been um, the Moreau people have sort of been neglected by the government and. Um, there's been land grabs from other ethnic groups and it's just led to armed conflict and stuff. Um, so people are just wary of, you know, their, their land and their rights and identity being taken from them. And so that's why they haven't joined on with, um, Raman's program. Um, 
But the villages with which Raman has been able to establish trust have been enormously effective towards the conservation in the area, which we're going to get into shortly. But to build the the relationships with the Moreau people, he had to prove, uh, you know, his his good intentions because, like I said, people were, you know, wary of him coming in at first. Um, so you know, Raman wanted data on reptiles specifically, but then you know later into all species, the biodiversity there, and he wanted to protect the forest. So you know, he didn't want to just preserve the forest and prevent the local people from, from using it. He wanted to reconcile conservation with their use. Yeah. So I think he did a really good job um, with the first step, which is building a relationship in the community. Um, Not only is it good for the researcher, but it's also good for the community themselves um, because as we keep on saying um, you have to consider the human aspect of conservation with every action you're taking in the wild so for the second step, what Raman did was introduce agency uh, to the community. So the Moreau people were telling Raman about the animal encounters um, that they were having in the woods, and he wanted to get evidence of these species. So in 2014, um, after a couple of years of establishing a relationship with the community, he gave cameras out so that the Moreau men who do most of the hunting could take photos of any wildlife they found dead or alive. Um, and this gave the villagers actions they could take willingly to help the conservation efforts And from that point onward, the photographic evidence from these citizens has opened up an entire new world of research and discoveries in the CHT, in the forest. So with the pictures that they took, Raman was able to confirm the occupancy of several species, including uh, clouded leopards, marbled cats, reticulated pythons, um, other species, which is newsworthy in and of itself to be able to confirm that occupancy in 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 a region that wasn't well studied. Uh, But the big thing they found were Iraqan forest turtles, which is a rare species thought to be found only in Western Myanmar, which if you know your geography is directly east of Bangladesh and India and not far from the CHT. Yeah. And they were actually that the Iraqan forest turtles were thought to be extinct until I think it was 1994 when they were discovered in, um, they were actually in a Chinese village or something about to be made into soup. And they were like, Oh wait, this species isn't extinct. Um, so this is like this, that's a huge find here. So Raman sort of began giving the villagers more resources and responsibilities and turning them into what is called quote unquote parabiologists, which are, are sort of like untrained. They're not, they're not, um, academically trained in biology. They're, they're sort of like super citizen scientists. So they, well, I mean, they probably know more about the resources and the forest there than someone that is academically trained, to be <laughs> honest. But um, they don't have a formal education. They're just trained to record record data and stuff. So they mm-hmm. got camera, um, like Mariana said, They first they got just regular cameras. Then they got camera traps, um, GPSs, some other tools for recording data. Um, and then also just training in recording data. And the... The the Manga Bay article has some really cool photos, I think, of of these Moreau men. You know, they're just wearing basically just loincloths. They have actually really cool they just have leaves as earrings. Which I, I didn't think notice is, that. That's it looks awesome. pretty cool, I think. Or like almost like a whole branch yeah, right. as that's, their earrings. That's really cool. Yep. Um 
and then they're they're standing there in the middle of the forest or sitting there with GPS as a notebook. There's like a photo of them with calipers measuring a turtle or a turtle, and they have some other field gear, and they're just like wearing a loincloth and um, leaf earrings, and it's just it's such a cool picture. Um, I just I just love the photos in the article because it's you know showing what these people can do when they're given those kind of resources and training. Um, mm-hmm. so I just really loved that. Um, and so with all the, all these resources, and then obviously, like I said, their extensive knowledge of the forest, the Moreau parabiologists were also able to confirm the presence of more endangered species, like the keeled box turtle, which I looked up is such a cool turtle. Yeah, I saw it too. Um, yeah. the Asian giant, the Asian giant tortoise. There was one other species of turtle, um, pangolins, some primates like the hulot gibbon and some type of leaf monkey. So pretty cool stuff that, that, that they're finding and, and documenting there. And no one else has ever documented this stuff before. So that I think shows how powerful this kind of model can be for, you know, filling gaps in knowledge like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think so too. And that's why it's important to, um, strengthen the agency in those communities and give them the resources so that they can then share their knowledge um, in an even more effective way um, and in a way which um, which can be translated to to science and conservation work. Um, so once you've done that, you want to um, increase incentives, right? So the, the Moreau people have lives to live and resources to work, and they're very busy, you know, working the land, um, and taking care of their communities. So to compensate for their participation, Raman actually pays his parabiologists for their efforts, um, several of whom have actually adopted their positions as full-time jobs because um, they've just gotten, they've just been so excited by it. Additionally, the Creative Conservation Alliance entered into a conservation agreement with six villages, uh, and that agreement was uh, for the villagers to reduce hunting on the most threatened of these species um, that they were discovering. Um, or rather that they were documenting. In return, uh, the CCA has helped build schools in those communities and has helped to establish a market for jewelry and other products created by Moreau women, um, which also gave the women a a really good opportunity to be involved in the conservation because in these communities, uh, the men were to do most of the hunting and also most of the citizen science work. Um, And so this also gave women agency in the community, which is also super important for effective conservation around the globe. Uh, so what what Raman made sure to do was give them compensation for their work and reward them for their efforts uh, because it was just really important that um, they not, it was really important to give them also that sort of economic incentive as well. Um, so I wanted to take a moment here to um, make a note on goodwill, I guess you can call it. Uh, We've been talking about agency and incentives, which are the most effective way to establish a sustainable community conservancy program, a key word on sustainable, uh, because if you don't provide um, that, that groundwork or the basis for sort of a, um, what am I trying to say? If you don't provide the groundwork for an economically sustainable and a lifestyle a sustainable lifestyle for these people, um, the program will, won't survive. I was thinking about, um, cause in the article it said that they get paid, um, a hundred dollars a month, hundred yeah. us dollars a month. And 
I'm I'm curious if you know what sort of is that is that like a lot? I mean, I'm sure mm-hmm. I, I'm sure it is, but um, are they better off like this? Because if they are, if they're better off um, with getting a hundred dollars a month, that that's such a small amount of money, and if that amount can support them and they can, you know, live without want with a hundred dollars a month, like that's also just financially uh, sustainable because a lot of programs invest so much money and in the, in, you know, initiatives like this and they're just not sustainable financially. And mm-hmm. so if a hundred dollars a month is plenty for them, then that's awesome because it's not that difficult to fund that then. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree because especially this is a nonprofit organization. So, um, yeah, if that's if that's a comfortable that's a comfortable amount for them, and and I believe at least for a few it is because many of them um, left their uh, jobs to do this full time. So, yeah, I think you're right. It is definitely something I think that the Conservation Alliance can continue doing, which is yep, absolutely important for sustainability, um, the sustainability of the program. Uh, so yeah, so that's really important. Those sort of, um, incentives, just, uh, rewarding people for their work. No, you know, yeah, it's important to reward people for their work. It's good for morale and it's good for the economy. So with all of these efforts that not only Raman and the conservation Alliance put into this work and, but also the Moreau people, um, they've had really great success, um, the Moreau people who have participated in this program are now protecting the same species they were hunting. They're protecting the same habitat that they were putting pressures on. And and I wanted to make sure to note that they aren't just tools that Raman is using. They're people. Uh, you know, they have empathy and passion. Uh, they have lifestyles and families and responsibilities. Um, and these sort of things are, are what Raman tapped into. He didn't introduce these values, obviously. He just tapped into them. Um, and I think that's important to note, especially when it comes to working with communities who depend on the resources that you're 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 doing conservation or research in. Um, it's really important to keep their keep their humanity, so to say, um, in mind uh, for that sort of thing. Yeah, and Raman and the um, CCA have done a really great job with giving credit to the parabiologists, which is a, a huge part of engendering that agency we keep talking about so um in addition to the you know camera work and hunting monitoring programs that they do um, the villagers also rescue wildlife that they find in the village you know if they find because like we said not everyone is on board with this program um some are probably more involved than others and so the people that are working in the program they might find you know they're someone in a village that has a turtle, one of the turtles in their, um, has a turtle with them. And then, so they, you know, take that turtle from the person and then they release it back. They, well, they measure it and they mark it and stuff. And then they release it back in the wild. Um, but then they also, you know, rescue some if they can't be released or if they need to be rehabilitated. Um, they do advocacy work in the region. So they're, they're trying to get other people on board because they realize how important this is. And I think that's one of the coolest things. Not that these people didn't realize that their resources were important before, but they didn't 
understand because I mean th- this is a very remote area that they're living in these small remote villages and they're just going about their their way of life so it's not that they're necessarily responsible for you know the decline of wildlife populations because like we I kind of briefly said there's a lot of illegal logging and poaching going on and so that's you know basically stealing the resources from these people that are relying on them um and so you know they realize one of the guys there was a quote in the article one of the guys said he didn't realize that the pangolin populations had declined so much mm-hmm. um because you know where around his village there's a lot and so he's really thankful there's a lot around his village but it was sort of an eye opener for him that you know these species aren't doing well and so i don't want to contribute to that and that's why he changed his ways or whatever so trying to get people on board with that to to understand the reality of it because they don't know that these populations are declining um all the time sometimes they might because they just might from their observations recognize Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. um so the villagers also you know help with protecting um the threatened species by through their advocacy um other things they you know monitor hornbill nests specifically the great hornbill which um Southeast Asian hornbills have sort of come up in a couple of our episodes because they're really endangered. So it's pretty cool that they're involved with that because they also know so much about these species, where they nest. You know, I'm sure when ramen came on, people were like, oh, yeah, we know where there's a bunch of great hornbill nests. And, you know, now they can monitor them. Um, They assist with captive breeding for some of the endangered animals, specifically the, the turtles and they've also established some farms and and bamboo gardens to sort of minimize their reliance on timber from the forest so then they don't have to be cutting it down and so you know coming up with that alternative so that they can conserve this tract of prime forest that's that's left um and then they um what am I trying to say? Oh, and they also, um, CCA has also, or, you know, the, and Raman and the, the people that have been publishing some of these findings have also included some of the parabiologists as co-authors on their papers, which is mm-hmm. super cool because, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to the Moreau because they don't, <laughs> they probably, they don't really understand that, but, um, it's important because, and I think Raman, there was a quote from him in the article talking about how, um, you know, we, we have our, you know, people in our field, they have to feed their egos and stuff, you know, and, you know, publishing is often an ego related thing. Um, and so he just, he basically said, you know, this isn't, this isn't about that. This is about giving credit where credit is due. And we wouldn't be able to publish these papers without these parabiologists. And so some of them have been co-authors, which is um, super cool. And it's not just important for, you know, the science of it, but it's also just important for the narrative because the Moreau are involved in every part of this. Mm-hmm. And it's not like, like you said, it's, they're not being used as tools. They're being recognized as part of this, which is super important. And 
you know, it will contribute to that narrative and hopefully increase the efforts in this program. Like, for example, the Bangladesh Forest Department hasn't really been able to cooperate in this effort. Um, and it wasn't really clear to me. And part of it was like just because of the political conflict. It also seemed like there just wasn't communication. I don't know if CCA, yeah. mm-hmm. there was a quote from the forest department and it made it sound like they were pointing the finger at CCA for not getting them involved, but I'm sure they CCA reached out and they just got turned down or people just never followed up or something, mm-hmm. or maybe it's a lack of resources, but now that they, you know, that the Moreau are involved, hopefully that will kind of make the forest department want to be involved and, and weigh in on the efforts as well. Yeah, I actually, I was, I just happened to be right on that quote. Um, and I think, I think that's a good point. Um, it's, you know, that there's only so far um, the article can go in, in describing all of the sort of political implications behind this and all of the uh, social implications and all the complications as well. Um, and it was um, a quote from S.M. Golamala, a forest officer with the Chittagong Division of the Department. And he said of Raman's group, they work separately, quote, they work separately, don't communicate or share information with us, and don't maintain good relations with us. They take permission from the DACA office, not from us, despite their site falling within the jurisdiction of Chittagong. If we work together, we could jointly visit the area. We could help them with our local staff, unquote, end quote. Um, so I, I think it's important also that the the writers of the article, the writer of the article got um, a quote, a, a sort of point of view from from the other side. Um, which shows to me, I, I don't doubt Raman's sincerity in wanting to work with um, the 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 Forest Service or the the government. I definitely don't doubt his sincerity. I, I know he wants to work with them, and I don't doubt the sincerity of the forest officers either. But there's something that didn't quite go deep enough in the article that um, you know that, that we're not entirely aware of, uh, not knowing the situation there. Um, but as Jonah was saying, it, you know it. Some of it could just fall down to communication. So yeah, anyway. Um, okay, so in conclusion, uh, first of all, we highly recommend you go ahead and read the article yourself. yourselves. We cover the gist of it, but there are a lot of amazing details that are, are really cool, especially about some of the species that they've, that they've seen there. And I know we simplified a lot going over the steps that Raman took to achieve this ongoing success story in Bangladesh. Um, especially when it comes to community conservancy. But I think that sometimes complicated matrices really can be boiled down to a few principles. And that's how this works, especially with community conservancy. It's um, remembering the principles and keeping it simple sometimes can can really work in your, not only in your favor, but in the favor of um, the stakeholders that you're working with, especially if you don't want to overwhelm them with a bunch of information um, that isn't going to be relevant to them. And you and you certainly don't want to be, you certainly don't want to be patronizing in your position, c- coming in and pretending that you know uh, what's going to work best for them. So I think that this example with Raman and the CCA is is a really good example of of him com- going in with a humble attitude, which I also think is really important. And this is, I mean, this is still so early in the in this program, and so there's, I think the way that this was started is is a near perfect example, like you said earlier, and there's still so much room for growth. I mean, and the, the article mm-hmm. talks about some of the, um, you know, there's obviously shortcomings and 
I mean, we talked about, you know, how everyone's not on board and the communication with the forest department, but there's, I mean, I have no doubt that this program is just going to continue to do awesome stuff and um, just build upon what they've already done. And that's what's so exciting. And that's, that's sort of why we wanted to cover this article because it's to, to get this on your radar now and to see it moving forward is going to be really cool. Yeah, that's true. I agree. Um, it, it'll be really, I, and I think I'm optimistic about the program. I think they've done, he and the community have done such an awesome job in their partnership that um, it's, I think there's a lot of potential in it. It's already proved, proven that. So um, yeah, I'm excited to see where it goes as well. Um, okay. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the value of anecdotal evidence, which I mentioned earlier in the episode and wanted to kind of go back to, I, you don't have to be doing research in a remote forest in Bangladesh to take advantage of anecdotal evidence, um, which is what Raman was able to do. You know, this all started with stories from, from the local villagers um, and hunters of wildlife that they were encountering that Raman wasn't even, you know, that surprised Raman. Um, and so it all started with anecdotal evidence, um, but you don't have to be in a remote region of the world to take advantage of that. You could be do, doing urban wildlife research in Baltimore, and you could get the same kind of value from local knowledge. Uh, when we were working on the bear study at Unity, we got so, we got so much knowledge from the, the landowners, from stakeholders, and they were so amazingly cooperative and supportive of us. And we learned a lot from them, whether it was about attracting bears or where the bears were traveling. Um, and that was really valuable for informing our methods um, and how we went about um, the study. Uh, so I don't I don't think researchers should ever underestimate that kind of thing, the, the anecdotal evidence or the, the knowledge that the people who live with these resources have. Um, whether you're doing research, wherever you're doing research, you should be connecting with the local people, not just to engender trust, but also to gain guidance and information. Yeah, and I... This is, you're absolutely right that, um, well, I don't know if you necessarily said this, but I think that researchers often sort of brush off anecdotal evidence, yeah. you know, um, because, oh, you know, we can't publish this or it's not, you know, a sample data or whatever, but it's the starting point of, I mean, it's really the starting point of the scientific method, if you mm -hmm. think about it. And that's what happened here. You know, observations or you learn something and then you start to ask questions about it and then it just kind of goes from there. And that's that's how science works. Um, you see something or you hear about something and then you want to investigate it further and then you design a study around it. And I just, I've recently just become so um, infatuated with, with I guess the scientific method in that process, because it's, um, it's such an amazing process. And to, I mean, like, you know, not to toot my own horn, but like, that's what's happening with my Saddleball project. It's so, and I think that's why I love, I'm realizing how much I love the scientific method. Cause I, it, my project started with like, I just saw these storks and observed some things. And then my whole project and my research questions have come from that. And it's mm -hmm. so cool to see it. I mean, you know, it will be so cool to see it play out in the whole um, come full circle, basically, because then you go and you implement this research and then you pub or you get your results and you, you know, 
interpret your results and you come to conclusions, but then there's going to be more questions, right? Yeah. And so then you go into that. And it, I mean, it's sort of like we talked about being a lifelong learner in that one episode, because I mean, this is a perfect example of taking advantage of this kind of anecdotal information and doing something with it instead of just brushing it off. You know, these people aren't trained scientists because that is just, I think that's just one of the worst things that a a person could do, especially someone that claims to, to love science and care about conservation when you brush off the knowledge that other people have that, and I mean, honestly, I think sometimes it might be a defensive thing because, you know, local people might know more than us, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, and it's just like, no, that can't be. I'm a, I have my PhD. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it can be sort of a hubristic thing. Um, and actually one thing that Raman said, um, let me just track it down really quick because um, your mention of the PhDs reminded me of it. Yeah, okay. Um, Raman said, um, as scientists, speaking about the ego again, as scientists, we often have this ego that we know everything, but I can have five PhDs and still never have the knowledge that these people have. So, yeah, so um, it's just, it's exactly what Jonah said. And I think being humble like that and not um, allowing your pride uh, to st- to get in the way, which is something everybody suffers from. We all know it. Um, but not allowing your pride to get in the way is really important for uh, for listening to to the stakeholders and community around you. Um, so, for example, up here at my prairie dog site in northern New Mexico, um, we have Gunnison's prairie dogs here, which are a hibernating species. Uh, the park rangers... Uh, sorry, <laughs> just like the moment I said Gunnison's prairie dog, I felt excited for some reason. Like, I just got like this jolt. <laughs> <laughs> excitement i was oh like my oh gosh. oh my gosh it's so anyway they i haven't seen them in a while because they're underground and whenever i go yeah. up there it's just so sad not to see them but anyway um <laughs> so up here at my gunnison's prairie dog site uh or our i should say because it was really john hoagland's site the researcher i was working with the park ra- actually speaking of john hoagland just to go on a quick tangent um as you were saying jonah um, how the scientific method works. You know, you ask a question, you get results, make conclusions, and it just leads to more questions. Um, that's exactly why John uh, was in the field doing research on four different species of prairie dogs for 45 years. And that was because he he kept encountering more questions and more questions. And he, he, was, he was always humble about it too. He would always say, you know, his famous phrase was, the more, the more, something like the more I know, he's, can't believe I'm going to get this wrong. <laughs> Sorry, John. I don't know if you listen to this anyway. The more I um, learn, the more I realize I don't know or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Like the more I learn about prairie dogs, the yeah. less I know. Um, it was something like that, which is, um, I think, a really good attitude to take. And um, it's what kept him going for 45 years. But even after he retired from the field this last year, if he could have kept on going, he would have. He totally would have um, because he had so many more questions that he was wanting to answer. But anyway, up here... <laughs> Back to what I was going to say uh, about anecdotal evidence. Uh, the park rangers up here at the Valles Caldera National Preserve, uh, they have seen prairie dogs over the winter. And as I mentioned, Gunnison's prairie dogs are a hibernating species, and they're underground from October to March. Um, and when we first heard from the rangers that they were seeing prairie dogs over the winter, we were not 
um, dismissive about it because uh, we understand that those little anecdotes are important. And it may not be statistically significant, as Jonah said, um, but it could be biologically significant. Uh, so the, the way we followed up with that was with a plan to watch the site over the winter. Um, I couldn't get up there often enough the one winter I tried, uh, but it's still something I want to do. And I could put cameras out there like Raman did. And who knows what we could find out if we start seeing Gunnison's prairie dogs popping up over the winter on a regular basis it would open up an entirely new area of knowledge and questions for us with these guys. So that's, you know, that's, that's a whole new, that's a whole realm of scientific knowledge with this particular species that could just come from, from stories from the park rangers. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good example, especially, especially how you said you weren't dismissive because that's, Mm -hmm. um, that's, I think, what people do too often. And I'm def- I've am i definitely been guilty of that before. And I think, well, this is like sort of related. It's funny, like uh, eBird, which is like a citizen science birding website, you know, people report birds on it all the time. And, and I do every time I go birding. And obviously, the more you go birding, the more you're going to see. And I remember when I was living in the Mojave Desert, I was living at this field station that had that was sort of like an oasis and I would bird it every single day, either in the morning or night, depending on what our work schedule was like. And so I would see everything that passed through there. And um, I saw, I forget what it was. I think it was a Hutton's Vireo or something. And when I reported on eBird, all these bird, uh, uh, whatever, bird lords just descended on me. And like, I was getting emails about, I need to confirm this and confirm that. And they just couldn't like believe it. And I was just like, (laughs) just because you've never seen it here before, doesn't mean that it is, doesn't can't occur here. Like I I bird this place every single day. So obviously I'm going to see things that other people miss. And that happens sometimes with on eBird, you report a rare bird and, and it's, I know, I understand it's quality control, but um, some people are, are pretty aggressive about it because, you know, they just can't believe it. And yeah, it, whatever. That's just a little, those are little pieces of anecdotal evidence, you know, a Hutton's Vireo showing up at this oasis in the middle of the desert. What does it mean? I don't know, probably nothing, but it's occurred there before. And that's a piece of information that if they're willing to accept it, you know. So yeah. Th- yeah, this is, I'm glad that you sort of brought this up and we talked about it more because it's something that's really important to me. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so to, for today's sustainability tip, I kind of want to relate it back to the sustainability tip from the last episode, um, which was, um, what was the last episode about? <laughs> oh, XC2 <laughs> conservation. Um, so I, I, I encourage you to, <laughs> I encourage you to not shop online as much. And, you know, it. the reason that I did that is because when you shop or the reason that I said that is because when you shop in a store, you can actually assess the packaging. And I guess the the whole point of this is to be buying things that aren't going to create a bunch of waste. So 
you know, when you buy things in the store, you can choose an option where the packaging is recyclable or something. Um, and I always, <laughs> because I mean, in reality, all the, the products we buy, you know, there's five choices or more of, of certain products, you know, so you can choose one that is better. And I always find myself feeling up the things I buy in the store all the time to be like, is this plastic? Is, Cause sometimes you just can't stink and tell cause everything's laced with plastic. Um, yeah. And so I aim to buy things that are wrapped in, in some sort of paper material and just avoid plastic if you can. And you can't really do that online. And also, like I said in the last episode, you end up getting a bunch of other plastic, unnecessary plastic packaging when you buy things online. Um, but a good example that you think would be harder to meet this recommendation or whatever is is uh, chips, you know, tortilla chips. Mm-hmm. You. They, they come in those just horrible plastic bags that aren't recyclable. Um, so what I do is I go for bags that are paper-based, which are few and far between. But if you think like the Mission tortilla chips, you know, those that's a good, paper bag. Actually. Yeah. And they're the best ones, yeah. And they're not <laughs> expensive. Um, mm-hmm. And they it does have like a slight like plastic layer on the inside. However, it, well, that means that you can't recycle it but it means it can still be burned. And so that's, this is like, <laughs> this is so like white trash of me. And people, I mean, people think that this is trashy or whatever, but I burn dirty paper, like non-recyclable paper. Mm. Um, and those chip bags are a good example. You know, you can't recycle it, but you can burn it and divert it from going into the trash. And I do that with other things like dirty tissues, um, uh, like gross greasy bags that my roommates bring home from whatever takeout or something um, things that you can't recycle but don't necessarily need to go in the trash and I have a separate trash can for this it's just a small one and then once it gets full I just go out um, you know when I lived in Illinois I just did it in my friend's barbecue like his charcoal barbecue just whoosh, light it all up um, here we have like a little brick thing outside then I just throw it in there and light it on fire and it's like it's so satisfying to watch that heap of trash just turn into a little mound of of ash because I don't know I think because I know that I I diverted it from the trash can and from putting in a trash bag and from doing that and then also just focusing on buying things um, that don't have packaging at all or focusing on buying things that have recyclable packaging, I've been able to use the same plastic trash bag for the past four months. Mm -hmm. It's been four months and I'm on the same plastic trash bag, which I'm super proud of. (laughs) But it's also scary because when I look in the trash can, it's all the, I'm going to take a picture of it before I throw it out and it'll probably take me another two months to fill it. But it's scary. It's all like the worst stuff, like all these little like, plastic tabs that you can't recycle and all the stuff that you see on the beaches and um, in the ocean and stuff. And so it's it's also sort of disturbing and eye-opening to see how much stuff we actually can't recycle. Mm-hmm. And anyways, so the point of that is to, you know, aim for stuff that, aim for packaging, well, avoid packaging at all if you can. Aim for recyclable packaging or burnable packaging. Avoid stuff that, has to be thrown away 
And if you're not sure, what I always do, I mean, even looking at um, the wrapping from toilet paper, it some most of those have where you can recycle them at the grocery store with regular plastic bags. So just, you know, I like just scan everything before I buy it and before I throw something away to make sure I know it's going to the right place. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, that's my tip. I I really just want to put a camera in your house to watch your roommates like reacting to the things you do. Oh my gosh. No, I mean it's it's really cool because they have gotten on board with it okay. to a certain extent. I have my own separate trash can. Yeah. Um which is why I haven't filled up in 4 months, but I mean they throw burnable stuff in the trash can and and I told like, you know, I don't expect them to go burn it. I said throw stuff in here like I will take care of it. I do not have a problem doing that. Yeah. Um, and it, and then we have recycling too, and it, they're definitely more mindful of it, and and they've commented on it how they've become more mindful of it. So yeah, I'm sure they do think I'm crazy though, and <laughs> I think they're crazy sometimes too. The yeah. stuff that they buy and throw away, but anyway. <laughs> oh, and then you could also be composting. That's also how you're diverting stuff because you throw like. You throw any organic material in the trash, it's going to start to stink, right? And that's what my one roommate always does. He throws like a meat wrapper in their trash can. And I always have to go end up taking it outside to our, you know, our curbside trash can because it smells up the whole place. Mm-hmm. So if it, if it was just me living in the house, like my house wouldn't smell like trash at all. Yeah. Um, and you could also do that by composting. And a lot of like, I have a compost heap and... But it's gotten too cold where it was so hot earlier a couple months ago that I would throw like a whole bin of stuff in the compost heap and mix it around. It would be completely decomposed in like a week. An entire banana peel is just gone. It's just soil. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That's how hot and humid it was. And then it got cold. And so I can't, I can't, I've run out of space because it's not decomposing as much. But a lot of places like here in town in San Marcos, they have um, like a green waste trash can. So you have like a trash can that they, they pick up on the street, a recycling can, and then a green waste for like leaves or basically organic material. And so I just throw our compost stuff in that. And they're all on board with that too. They put stuff in the compost uh, bucket that I've designated. So awesome. Um, it's pretty cool. Good habits are contagious. Exactly. Uh, good sustainability tips for this um, for this episode. I don't think we'll ever run out of sustainability tips, really. Um, so, yeah. Um, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to share them on the podcast. So feel free to connect with us on Facebook or Instagram at Conservation Chronicles. You can also email us at conservationchronicles at gmail.com. Uh, no question, comment, or controversy is off limits. Uh, we want to hear from you. And you can find us and other episodes at our website, uh, conservationchronicles.podbean.com. Uh, you can also find other episodes at um, most um, podcast platforms, I believe. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Bye.